read uh, Romans 12 verses 1 to 3, but we're going to focus on verse 3 today. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. I truly think that pride is the most insidious and probably the most destructive sin in the Christian life. If you think about how pride affects, uh, think about marital disputes, fights that you get into with your spouse. Almost always they stem from some form of pride. Church splits. They come because somebody's proud. They want to have their own way. They don't want to humble themselves before other people. Conflicts with other people at the workplace. It's almost always because of pride. Go back to the very beginning. I believe pride was at the, the core, the base for the fall of man. They're in the Garden of Eden. The Serpent came to Eve and she said, Has God said you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And Eve said, Well, no, he said that we can eat from every tree except for one. He said, We can't eat of it or touch it, lest we die. And the serpent says, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to become like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the serpent doing right there to Eve? He's tempting her. God's holding out on you. God doesn't have your best interests at heart. If God really loved you, he would want you to have this ability to know good from evil, and he would really want you to be like him, but he doesn't want you to be like him, so he's holding out on you. And rather than to humbly trust God and to be completely dependent upon God, they said, yeah, yeah, I want what God's holding out on me. And so they took the fruit and they ate. So pride was there right at the fall of man which has dumped the whole, the whole world into depravity and darkness and destruction. And all of that came through, through an act of pride. Pride is where we exalt ourselves and we demean other people. Unity can't exist when pride reigns unchecked. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul is going to be talking about the unity of the Spirit, he tells the church there to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But before he gets to that, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So all humility comes before this unity of the spirit and this bond of peace takes place within the body. In Proverbs 6.16, God says there are six things that he hates, actually seven, and the very first one he mentions is haughty eyes. Now what does haughty mean? Right? We, we, we use that term. It means to be arrogant and to be proud and to demean others. It means to lift yourself up and look down on everybody else because you've lifted yourself up and you look around at the world with these haughty eyes. The Bible says God hates that and it's number one on his list of things that he hates. 
He hates pride. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't think any of us here want God, the Almighty God, the Creator God, to be opposed to us. But we, we, He will be opposed to us if we are proud. Romans 12 through 16 is the practical section of this book. Chapters 1 through 11 are the doctrinal section, but here Paul is teaching Christians how to live out the gospel. He's explained the gospel in the first 11 chapters, and now he's going to teach us how to live it out in the last five chapters. And he begins telling them how to live out the gospel by speaking about their relationship to God first. He says, you need to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God. God is the one you need to be concerned about more than anything else, not man. Your relationship to God and presenting all that you are to God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week as a living and holy sacrifice, which is your worship of God. That's what you need to be concerned about more than anything else. But... Well, I shouldn't say, but he, he continues with that thought in verse 2 by, saying, by showing us how we can have this relationship to God. It's by being transformed. And we're transformed in the renewing of our mind where we refuse to be conformed to the world, but renew our minds. And through that, there's this process that takes place where we grow in spiritual maturity so that we learn how to discern what God's will is in specific situations of our life where we don't have a Bible verse that tells us what His, what his will is. And those happen all the time. We run into a situation, what do I do about this? What's the right thing to do? Well, as you grow in spiritual maturity, because your mind is being transformed and renewed, God gives you the ability to discern what is pleasing in His sight in those situations. Now he comes to verse 3, and he's switching gears here. Because in the first two verses, he's talking about our relationship to God and how to live out the gospel in our relationship to God, in this vertical relationship. But in verse 3, he switches gears, and now is how do you live out the gospel in its horizontal relationship between people and yourself? Not God now, now it's other people. And he's going to have a lot to say about how we are to live out the gospel in relationship to others. He's going to talk about how we live out the gospel in terms of our spiritual gifts, in terms of body ministry, in terms of our relationship to government leaders, um, in terms of the weaker brethren in, in the church. But he's just beginning now in verse 3. And what he starts with is the subject of pride and humility as he thinks about our relationship to other people within the body. Verse 3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. He does basically the same thing he did in verse 2. In verse 2, he gave us a negative command, followed by a positive command. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. First the negative, then the positive. S same thing here in verse 3. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. First the negative, and then the positive. And Paul has this, he's considering now the renewed mind. In verse 2, he talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
Now, folks, what does a mind do? What do you do with a mind? You think with it. And that's why he mentions the word think three times in verse 3. He says in verse 2, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewed mind thinks. And so he says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. So Paul's considering this, remo- this renewed mind and how the renewed mind thinks. And the f- very first thing he tells us is that the renewed mind must not think of itself too highly. In verse 2 he says don't be conformed to the world. The, wor- the world does think too highly of itself and it doesn't feel bad about it. It thinks that's normal. So the world uses terms like self-esteem, self-gratification, self-exaltation, self-promotion. At the bottom and the core of the world's philosophy of thinking is self. Self is the most important thing. But in God's kingdom, everything gets turned over on its head. And in God's kingdom, God is the most important. And not using people to serve your needs, but serving God, humbling yourself and serving others' needs becomes the preoccupation in God's kingdom. So this morning we're going to be taking a look just at two things and I think our message is probably going to be a little bit shorter than usual. At least it took up less space when I wrote it out so I think it is. (laughs) But we're going to talk about human pride, the universal problem, and then sound judgment, the biblical solution to that problem. So first of all human pride, the universal problem. Paul says in verse 3, For through the grace given to me. Paul's about to bring a very strong word of correction to the church at Rome. Very strong. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It's almost a rebuke. He's reproving them. Well, what gives him the right to speak such strong words? Remember, he's never even been to this church before. He's never visited. And he's bringing a strong word of correction to them. Well, it's because of the grace that was given to him from God. God gave him the grace of apostleship. In chapter 1, he said he was called as an apostle. So that's the qualification that Paul has to bring this strong word. God gave him grace to be an apostle and called him to be an apostle. He gave him revelation, gave him insights. And he says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. So what he's about to say is not just for the few. It's not just for the minority of Christians that might have a little bit of a problem with pride. (laughs) That's not it at all. All of us have been infected with this sin of pride. It's at the root. It's at the core of who we are. That's why we think about ourselves so much. It's because of pride. And we need deliverance from it. And so Paul directs this word of correction, not just for one or two or three or four, but to the whole church. All of us need this word. And then he says, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Do you have any doubt in your mind that you have a problem with pride? If you just take a minute and think about why am I so hard on other people and so easy on myself? Have you ever wondered that? How you can be so critical of somebody else and not be critical at all of your own shortcomings? It's got to have to do with pride. We're so focused on lifting ourselves up and exalting ourselves and thinking we can do no wrong. 
So that guy out there, how can he possibly have done what he did? But we don't even recognize the sin in our own lives sometimes. It's because of our pride. Now, Paul says here in verse 3, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Well, how ought we to think about ourselves? He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Well, how ought we to think about ourselves? That's the question we need to begin with. What does the Bible say about how the Christian should think about himself? Well, let's look at some scriptures this morning that will give us some answers to that. The first one is Luke 17, 7-10, where Jesus is teaching. And he says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave, because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now here Jesus tells us how we ought to think about ourselves, And it's not very flattering. He says you should think about yourself as being an unworthy slave. That's all we are. Every last one of us. From Billy Graham down to the brand new Christian. All of us are unworthy slaves. And even if we had done every single thing that the Lord ever commanded us to do, and none of us has done that, we're supposed to simply say, well, we've only done what we ought to have done. Why, I, why, are you, why do I expect a pat on the back? Why do I expect other Christians to praise me or applaud me? I only did what I was supposed to do, right? I didn't do some great thing that I should be boasting about or bragging about. I'm an unworthy slave. I only did what I ought to have done in the first place. So that's how Jesus says we should think about ourselves. He also says over in John 15, 5, and I'm just going to pull this phrase out of this verse. He says, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Now, do we really believe that? No. <laughs> Not, we need to believe that, but too often we don't. We think that there are things we really can do. So Jesus teaches us to think about ourselves, I can't do anything, well anything good, apart from Christ. And I'm an unworthy slave, and even if I do everything I'm supposed to do, I can't boast or brag about that because I should have done it in the first place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. How did Paul think about himself? He thought of himself as someone who did any good thing in his life only by the grace of God. In other words, the abilities that he had to do good did not come innately from himself. They came through God's grace poured out on his life. Or 1 Corinthians 4.7. Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now what's the answer to his questions? His question is, what did you have that you did not receive? What's the answer? Nothing. We don't have anything that we did not receive from God. So why do we go around bragging and boasting and exalting ourselves and arrogantly, as though, ah, look at me, I'm something, I'm big stuff. Wait a minute, everything you have came from God. <laughs> Paul says in Romans 7, 18, 
I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now by flesh, I believe he's talking about our unregenerate human nature, our fallen human nature. He says, in that fallen nature, there's no good thing that dwells. There's nothing good in that. You can't find any, any good thing in your fallen human nature. It's only when you're renewed by the Holy Spirit and you're given a new nature and new life that you start to see the, the beautiful good fruits of the Holy Spirit coming out. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now what's he getting at there? He's saying only God can cause something that is not alive to come alive and only God can cause a living thing to progress in growth. So if you're planting or if you're watering, well that's good, you should be doing that, but you're not the important one here. You can plant, you can water, and nothing can happen unless God's working. <laughs> so God is the important one in this situation and he says neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. So let's back up and let's just condense these verses to to answer the question well how ought we to think about ourselves? Those that are unworthy slaves who have only done what they ought to have done, those that can do nothing apart from Christ, those in whose flesh dwells no good thing, those that do every good thing they do only through the grace of God, those who have received every good thing from God, and those who are nothing while God is all in all. That's a pretty good biblical theology of how we're supposed to view ourselves. Now, notice Paul says we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. I also think it's wrong for us to deliberately uh, lie and say and try to appear that we are worse than we really are. You, you know, we can we can err on both sides. We can we can go around kind of. Uh, you know, I really don't have any gifts. I, I really almost have no faith at all. And of course you know that you really do have gifts and you do have faith, but you're kind of saying that to appear humble. That's just as sinful as boasting. Right? So you have to have sound judgment, which, yes, these are the gifts that God gave me. I can't boast in them because they come from God. But I do have gifts that the Lord has given me. And He has given me this measure of faith. And so that's who I am. So it's a sober analysis and assessment of myself based on the faith that God has granted. So there's a biblical view of self. Our problem is that, not that we don't have enough self-esteem, our problem really is that we esteem ourselves too highly. That's the problem that we've got. We don't need to start injecting more self-esteem into people. We, we need to get a little bit of that self-esteem they already have out of them so that they can be a little bit more humble. We need to prick that balloon of pride. So there's the universal problem. It's human pride. Let's look at the biblical solution. Paul says it's sound judgment. He says, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. That word sound means healthy. And judgment refers to opinions or decisions that you make. So these are healthy opinions and decisions that we make. 
In other words, this is a healthy assessment of yourself. But notice what he bases that self-assessment on. It's on the faith that God has allotted to you. So faith becomes the standard of the assessment that you make about yourself when you take a sober evaluation of who you are. It's your faith. God wants us to make right and true sound assessments of ourselves. And he's not asking us to think more lowly of ourselves than we ought. And he's not commanding us to deny our spiritual gifts or to lie about whether we have faith or how much faith we have. He just says you need to assess yourself soberly and rightly in his sight. Now notice here, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In order to make a sound evaluation of who you are in Christ, you need to evaluate the measure of faith you have. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And you say, well, won't that promote pride if I do that? Because I can say, hey, I've got more faith than you do. So I'm better than you. And it, wouldn't that cause the person's pride to be lifted up within him when he assesses himself on his measure of faith? Well, no, it won't. And for two reasons. First of all, the nature of saving faith. And then secondly, the fact that saving faith is a gift. The nature of saving faith and the gift of saving faith. And let's talk about those two for, for a little bit here. The nature of saving faith. What is faith? What is it? Let's try to define it. Faith is a self-emptying grace. Because faith looks away from itself to another. Faith is focused and fastened on Christ, the Savior. So faith cannot promote pride because pride is always, it has to do with me, focusing on me, how well I am. Faith looks away from me. It's not even concerned with me. It's all of its focus and energy is fastened and fixed, fixed on Jesus Christ himself. So that's the nature of it. The essence of the Christian who has a renewed mind is that he looks away from himself to Christ as the sum and the epitome of all that is glorious and beautiful and pure. He sees Christ to, see all, to be altogether lovely in his mind. And if faith is looking away from myself to Christ, how can I be proud of my faith? The more faith I have, the more I'm looking away from me to Christ. I'm not fixated on me and how big or small my faith is. I'm fixated on Christ Jesus. And so my pride is pricked and the balloon of the air goes out and my pride goes down and I become more humble the more faith I have. So faith crushes pride. The more faith I have, the more I look away to Jesus. And the less reason I have to boast. Now, faith will also not lead to pride for this reason. It's a gift. And that's what he tells us here in verse 3. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now he's not talking about every person in the world. He's talking about every Christian here. God hasn't allotted to every person in the world a measure of faith. There are many people who have no faith at all. They're atheists. He's talking about believers. God has allotted to each born-again child of God a measure of faith. And that word allotted means to give by portioning out. Like if you're, you've got six kids and after dinner you take them to the freezer box and you open it up and you give them each um, fudge sickle. <laughs> You're allotting to each one 
a measure of what you've got in that freezer. God allots, he portions out as a gift to each one of his children, notice, a measure. And it's not the same measure for every child. Some's more, some's less. But it is a gift. The faith that you have in Jesus Christ did not arise from within you. You're not the source of it. Yes, you do, you do the believing. That's true. God doesn't believe for you. You believe. You trust Him. But that ability to trust Him, that ability to believe, did not come innately from you. It came from God who gave it to you. And you say, well, Brian, you sure that's true? Is there any, is there any Bible that would actually support the truth? Truth that, that faith is a gift of God. And there is. I want to show some of them to you this morning. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now, he says there, It has been granted to believe and to suffer. There are two things that God gives. Two things God grants. Faith and the ability to suffer for his sake. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, and I'm going to read it from the ESV because it, I think it's a little bit better translation than, than the NASB here. This is how it reads. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Now, did you hear what he said there? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? In other words, our belief is according to the working of his great might. Well, how great is his might? It's the same might that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in people that they might believe the gospel. Or Acts 18.27 which says, Apollos greatly helped those who believed through grace. Now why did Luke stick those last two words in there? Why didn't he just say, Apollos helped those who had believed? He wants to emphasize to his readers the fact that faith is not just something that anybody sums up, summons at any time in their life. It comes through the grace of God. Or Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now how does a person, well first of all, what were the things spoken by Paul do you suppose? What is he talking about? The gospel. How does a person respond to the gospel rightly? Faith. So the Lord had to open up Lydia's heart to have faith in the gospel that Paul was preaching. Do you see that? It took an opening of the heart for her to be able to respond. Or how about John 6, 65? Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. But what does it mean to come to Jesus? If you go back to verse 35, he explains himself. John 6, 35. Jesus says there, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. You guys are familiar with parallelism by now, right? This verse has parallelism in it. He who comes to me will not hunger. 
He who believes will not thirst. What is coming to Jesus parallel to in his statement there? It's believing in him. Hunger and thirst are parallel. Coming and believing are parallel statements. So to come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, no one can come to me or no one can believe in me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So all of these statements tell us the same thing that we've discovered from Romans 12.3. Faith does come to, from God as a gift. Now do you see what Paul's doing here? He's making a person's faith the measure of their greatness. Because he tells them, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So he's making the person's faith the measure of their greatness. And I'm just going to quote here a couple of sentences that I got from uh, John Piper's sermon on this because I thought it was so good. This is how he put it. If Christ is more to you, you are more. If Christ is less to you, you are less. Your measure increases or decreases with your measure of Him. Your value of Him is the value you have. In other words, it's not all about us. It's all about us valuing Christ. It's about our faith reaching out and grabbing a hold of Jesus. And that becomes the measure of who you are in the kingdom. So, a person who, who is wrapped up in Jesus Christ and loves Him supremely above all else, that person is great. But a person who, you know, just kind of trivializes Christ in his life, puts Him to the side, doesn't love Him supremely, that person's less. It has to do with his measure of faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul tells us that we assess ourselves by faith and that's not going to puff us up. It's not going to make us boast. It's not going to make us prideful. First of all, because faith looks away from me to Christ. Second of all, because it came to me as a gift and I can't take any credit at all for it. And so let me wrap up our study today with a few thoughts for you. A wise Christian once said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now think about that statement. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's just not being preoccupied with yourself. It's being preoccupied with Jesus Christ. And that's what I want for all of us here. I want all of us here to think less of ourselves and more of Christ. Throughout the day, may he be more conscious or I'm sorry, may we be more conscious of him throughout our day. May we pray more as we go through our day. Whatever we happen to be doing. May we be living for his eyes and his approval and his pleasure. Brothers and sisters, God's word to you and me today is to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But how does the renewed mind do that? Well, let's back up and re remind ourselves. We think of ourselves the way the Bible tells us to, which is as unworthy slaves who can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ and who do all the good that they do through the grace of Christ. That's a biblical self-assessment. Secondly, we look away from ourselves to Christ as our all-satisfying treasure, as the most beautiful being in this universe. 
And thirdly, we understand that our faith has come to us as a gift of God and not from ourselves. It came from Him. And if we would just do those three things, how much more peace and harmony would we experience in our marriages, in our churches, in our workplace? Let's determine that we will not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Let's take a humble, what a beautiful word humility is. Remember the Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself. He existed in the form of God, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of man. And if our Savior did that, and how much more should we, who are full of pride to begin with, be willing just to humble ourselves and not make my will the rule of what everybody else has to do around me? To take a low place, a servant's place. Just, okay, Lord, yes, I, it's true. I am an unworthy slave. Help me just to live that out in your presence. So I just want to exhort all of you today. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. And the sound judgment has to do with the fact that God has allotted to each of you a measure of faith. Lord, would you please seal the truth of this passage of Scripture to our hearts and help us to kill pride with the weapons that you've given us here in this passage. I pray that you would Enable us to go to war with the pride that rises up in us so often. And Lord, to mortify that sin, to put it to death. Please be glorified now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.